The two papers in this section of the conference deal with the general question whether and how humans are naturally open to God. Such openness can take many forms. It may be the intrinsic directedness of the human intellect and will towards God, as Aquinas argued. It may be humans' de facto openness to God's gift of soul creation and procreation, or to his directive power more generally, whether or not they're aware of it, uh, as Calvin uh, emphasized so often. But in modernity, the most animatedly discussed forms of openness are experiential forms of openness to God. What we might call, in a broadening translation of Calvin's sensus divinitatis, a sense of the divine. John Calvin originally used the term sensus divinitatis in a hypothetical, as a hypothetical sense, uh, parallel in some ways to the senses of sight uh, and other uh, and other senses by which humans naturally apprehended God. Calvin did not argue that humans could apprehend God correctly through this sense, only that they were, they were never guiltless for denying him. In other words, the function of the sensus divinitatis and Calvin primarily um, emphasized juridical questions. The it was a component of his argument for human culpability. In the late 20th century, philosophy of religion, Alvin Plantinga, inheriting the Dutch Reformed tradition, made a very different use of the term sensus divinitatis in the context of an apologetic argument for the reasonableness of Christian belief. He argued that in order to show that a belief, religious belief in particular, is, is rational or warranted, it is not necessary to prove the existence of God only to show that belief is formed through the correct working of a reliable sense or reliable organ. He therefore set about to argue that a sensus divinitatis is a reliable sense whose deliverances may be followed, even though in many people that sense is vitiated by sin. This is an intriguing piece of argumentation which sets itself against masters of suspicion who attribute belief not to the correct working of um, a reliable sense, but to the misfunctioning of senses that are in fact directed towards innerworldly objects or aims, such as community building or survival. So for Feuerbach, Nietzsche, Wagner, Freud, Marx, Heidegger, and many others, belief in God is often the mistaken projection of human concerns onto a giant screen the need to set limit conditions for human concerns or to anchor them in transcendent realities. And for these thinkers, such projections are always ultimately unstable. They always ultimately undermine themselves. In one sense, then, the question of a sense of the divine, a sort of broadened sensus divinitatis, is a distinctly modern, perhaps even distinctly Protestant preoccupation, insofar as the existence of an innate sense of God becomes necessary only if it is no longer simply accepted, as we see it, for example, in Summa Theologia 1, 1 to 2, that the will and the intellect in their entirety presuppose or strive towards God. So if you look at this diagram here on the screen, we have on the one hand, under the broad rubric of a human openness to God, an experiential human openness to God even, the general openness of will and intellect to God, God is their natural aim um, and ground. And on the other hand, um, what I'm calling a sense of the divine, which, as I say, marks, marks a shift of a general openness towards a specific locus or opening, that crack by which the light gets in, in, 
uh, a much loved quote nowadays. But in another sense, the, se the question of an experiential sense of God that is more immediate than his recognition as the ground and end of intellect and will is as old as religion itself. And Eastern Orthodoxy, for example, has long posited the human possession of a noose, a sort of spiritual sight uh, that is almost parallel to the five senses and is capable of being trained to see God directly. Many thinkers and traditions in modernity have attempted to describe what this sense of God, this ability, this human ability to apprehend God consists in, and whether it is more like a distinct organ, such as the Orthodox news, or more like a foundational experience or mood, such as Schleiermacher's feeling of complete dependence. So once you're within this field of a sense of the divine, you can either see this as a sort of foundational mood in which you, um, with which you inhabit the world, and I've listed others. Or you can see this as some kind of organ, again, parallel to the five senses in some way, um, which is capable of being um, being trained or of, 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 of apprehending the divine. So Henri de Lubac's, as well as C.S. Lewis's natural desire for the supernatural, Alvin Plantinga's version of the sensus divinitatis, are examples of something like an organ or a capacity oriented towards God. Adolf Reinach's feeling of shelteredness, Heidegger's feeling of affliction, or perhaps Bonhoeffer's Cantus Firmus are examples of a basic mood that grounds our experience of life as a whole. There are also models like Rahner's Forgriff, which describe a sense of God that is always by necessity indirect, where God functions as the itself unseen horizon uh, of any apprehension of objects within the world. Um, but I'm putting that aside for the moment. Now, interestingly, all of these except planting a sensus divinitatis perhaps, have, a, have in common an interplay between presence and absence. For, for all of the ones listed up here, God's presence and the apprehension of God's presence is at the same time an apprehension of his absence to some extent. And we'll come back to that. Now, the questions of mood or attunement, uh, as well as of horizons or conditions of possibility are questions that interest me a lot, but which I would like to set aside for the duration of this paper to focus specifically on sense as an organ or capacity of apprehension. Recently, the claim of a direct apprehension of God has also become of renewed interest to psychologists and anthropologists and cognitive scientists of religion, whose findings, however, unsurprisingly, but nevertheless interestingly, are much more ambiguous not only in their substance, but also in their possible import. The guiding question of such scientists is, if we take scientifically seriously the claim of a direct sense or apprehension of God, what might that look like in practice? What could we detect? And the necessary ambiguity of the results of any such investigations stems partly from the fact that even if psychological research could show that we have some kind of innate sense of the divine. Nevertheless, the nature of psychology as a subject is such as to make any metaphysical conclusion, if not impossible, then at least neither necessary nor compelling. No research on a human capacity can prove it to be directed only towards a specific object, unless this capacity involves physical receptors and the substance received is independently detectable, in which case we're just studying the substance. Placed within a standard explanatory framework, such a discovery of a human organ or you know, receptor can become an argument against Christian belief just as easily as it can become an argument for it, 
since it might suggest that the claim to detect divine agency overinterprets or gives undue metaphysical weight to a merely inborn evolutionary tendency. So we're back to the masters of suspicion. And so when you see standard cognitive scientific accounts of religion, which say, for example, that humans are born with a hyperactive agency detector, or that children are born with an innate assumption of an omnipotent actor outside of themselves, then although some scientists may, who have religious belief themselves may see that as an argument for the probability of the existence of God who, in, in, who endowed us with such natural apprehensions, yet nevertheless somebody else could just as easily say that this is a misfunctioning um, and an argument against the existence of God. Again, we have to distinguish between the claim of a diffuse lifelong desire um, or other long-term motive force, which is difficult to investigate psychologically, and a more concrete apprehension of the divine in the present moment. Uh, and again, although the first, the sort of idea of, a, of, of lifelong desire interests me, this paper is about the second, uh, the question of uh, a sense or apprehension of the divine in the present. Perhaps the most interesting result of recent psychological and anthropological research in this area, for example, by Tanya Lerman, is that if there is such a sense of the divine, then it is learned rather than merely innate. A sense of the divine, in other words, is closer to the ability to perceive nuances of nose and palate in a wine, or of fugal variations in a baroque fugue, or the intricacy of a position on a chessboard, than it is to the more innate ability to see colors or to hear human voices, or we might add, to the pathological but equally immediate compulsion to see hallucinations or hear disembodied voices. In other words, if there is a natural or if there is a human ability to detect or to sense divine uh, presence or agency, then that must be, then it is closer to an acquired taste or a, a learned taste, a learned intuition, such as we have in people who are able to, to perceive the nuances in wine or to hear the intricacies of music. Uh, than, than a more immediate or, or, or merely uh, natural sense. Tanya Lerman, um, whose latest book is there on the slide, is perhaps the foremost anthropologist in this area. Having been raised Unitarian and having deep sympathies for people of faith, she has developed her theory over the course of decades of immersive research in faith communities of various religions, seeking to identify strategies and habits that they have in common with each other. Lerman argues that contrary to the common psychological assumption that God is simply present to religious people, as voices are to schizophrenics or hallucinations to drug addicts, those are very popular anthropological or psychological uh, models, religious people in fact have to work to make God present. In other words, that they have to practice the presence of God and that doing so also changes their perception of, their of the world and their own place within it. Lerman recognizes, of course, that the commitment to such work, to such imaginative work, sometimes has roots in a radical, unbidden and unexpected experience of divine presence, a mystical experience, a conversion experience, a near-death experience. But she nevertheless sees the day-to-day -day experience of divine presence as a learned one, practiced in the face not only of doubt, but of a basic recognition that when we speak of divine presence, we cannot mean the simple presence of objects or even people within the world. How we negotiate the different ontological frameworks, the different senses of the word real with which we operate 
when we think about God or of uh, everyday objects is of great interest to Lerman, though she curiously does not try to understand why people invest the necessary effort to make God real for themselves. Lerman's theory is that our psychological ability to make God real for us, and stick with me for a moment, it sounds offensive, but it has interesting implications, that our psychological ability to make God real for ourselves is related to our ability mentally to inhabit Middle Earth or Wizarding England, or mentally to relate to an imaginary friend. The crucial differences, she recognizes, are shared mental and practical frameworks within which we develop mental and practical habits also to register the reality of that other whom we imagine. We learn to detect and pay attention to interoceptive stimuli, to interpret these experiences spiritually, and to place ourselves within a world shaped by the assumption of God's presence and agency. As an anthropologist, Lerman has not investigated the specific psychological processes involved in the suspension of disbelief in the world of a novel or the creation of an imaginary friend or belief in God, though these presences are the subjects of other research projects, including one led by me. The point is, however, that according to her and other views, and this is what I really want to get at, there is no separate sense or organ for the perception or reception of God. And this may very well be entirely uncontroversial, almost tautological to a number of people in the room um, and relatively counterintuitive to others. Awareness of God on this view moves through the same faculties and capacities as our awareness generally. Again, this would be contested both by reformed thinkers such as Plantinga, who think that we have a separate sense for uh, for God, the sensus divinitatis, or by orthodox thinkers who would say, no, we have uh, an innate spiritual sight, a nous, um, which, which perceives God. If this first path is right, then two of the capacities at play. So in other words, if it is right that we perceive God through our ordinary sense organs in a particular way, then two of the capacities at play are imagination and desire. We imagine God's voice in the strict sense that the processes of imagination are what we employ, even if these processes have a different valence or a different, different significance in the context of, of hearing God. And we desire in all the ways in which we desire, even if that desire has a different significance when recognized as ultimately directed to God. In other words, I'm arguing that God meets our ordinary human faculties and fills them in a particular way. Intellectually, this issue can be investigated both from within and from outside of the relevant experience. From outside, we can launch an independent investigation of the purported object which would validate the receptive sense. If we can show independently of experience that there is such a thing as an ideal partner, then the inchoate desire for union receives a very different significance than if there is no such thing. Even if, of course, the definition of ideal will not be independent of the felt desire. From within, we can launch a further investigation into the way in which the same sense or capacity manifests itself differently in relation to different purported objects. The first, an independent investigation of the object is what metaphysics does. The second, a further investigation of the nature of the experience is what phenomenology does. Metaphysics needs phenomenology because it cannot verify itself. It can never fully escape the risk of being a castle in the sky, a projection, 
a beautiful but empty construct. Phenomenology needs metaphysics to remember that human intentionality and orientation is towards and within a world not of our own making, that to describe experience without trying to articulate its object is to be untrue to the kind of experience it is, and that it is at least possible that you cannot describe a human being accurately, even phenomenologically speaking, without acknowledging the possibility of an openness to the transcendent. And this is, of course, uh, in a sense, a version of Kant. I'm a phenomenologist by temperament, and so I will approach the topic from the hither side, from the side of further investigating the experience of sensing the divine in, by, in, uh, within the use of both imagination and desire, even though I will have recourse to, to metaphysical speculation. Let us run for the duration of this lecture with the theory that our faculties are in some sense the same for engaging God as inner worldly things, and let us investigate the implications of that. The most bold and suggestive theory that I know concerning these things, although it hasn't been taken up into the canon and wasn't formulated as such, is C.S. Lewis's theory of transposition. It's in a sermon on the occasion of Pentecost entitled Transposition. Lewis takes as his text Paul's discussion of glossolalia, of speaking in tongues, and asks how to approach the fact that glossolalia can and or may sometimes be a simply hysterical phenomenon, a simply human phenomenon, but cannot, by Christians who take Paul seriously, be conceded always to be such. In other words, even though glossolalia or speaking in tongues may sometimes be uh, a simply sort of hysterical uh, outpouring, yet nevertheless, we have biblical, um, biblical testimony that it is sometimes a spiritual phenomenon, uh, and Christians, Lewis things, have to deal with this doubleness uh, of it being perhaps sometimes the one, but certainly sometimes the other. Lewis analogizes this to the frequent association of mystical experiences with erotic feelings and language which may be mere sublimation, but shouldn't be admitted always to be so. To find a surer ground for arbitration, Lewis then analogizes these further to less spiritual and more everyday experiences which exhibit similar patterns. Thus he writes, I find that during a moment of intense aesthetic rapture, one tries to turn around and catch by introspection what one is actually feeling, and if one does so, one can never lay one's hand on anything but a physical sensation. In my case, it is a kind of kick or flutter in the diagram, diaphragm. But the important point is this. I find that this kick or flutter is exactly the same sensation which in me accompanies great and sudden anguish. Introspection can discover no difference at all between my neural response to very bad news and my neural response to the overture of the magic flute. And I likewise love this internal flutter in one context and call it a pleasure and hate it in another and call it a misery. It is not a mere sign of joy or anguish. It becomes what it signifies. When the joy thus flows over into the nerves that overflow, uh, that overflow is its consummation. When the anguish thus flows over, that physical symptoms symptom is the crowning horror. The very same thing which makes the sweetest drop of all in the sweet cup also makes the bitterest drop in the bitter. And he concludes as follows, I take our emotional life to be higher than the life of our sensations, of our physical sensations. Not, of course, morally higher, but richer, more varied, more subtle. And this is a higher level, which nearly all of us know. And I believe that if anyone watches carefully the relations between his emotions and his sensations, he will discover the following facts. One, 
that the nerves do respond in a sense most adequately and exquisitely to the emotions, that their resources are far more limited, the possible variations of sense far fewer than those of emotion. And three, that the senses compensate for this by using the same sensation to express more than one emotion, even as we have seen to express opposite emotions. Lewis thus comes to argue that bodily sensations, and to some extent emotions also, are a limited range of instruments which are required to express a wider range of realities than they have individual capacity for. He uses the analogy of a piano arrangement of an orchestral score in which the piano must represent a whole range of different instruments. Lewis could also have used the analogy of language. We do not have an individual word for each thing. And this can mean two things. One, of course, a key function of words is to categorize, to capture something more general about two things, such as this and this, both being the same tree, both being trees. But what I have in mind now is not the use of a generic word for different individuals, but rather the pervasive metaphorical use of language. That was heavy, can refer to a suitcase, or to a dense lecture, or to a funeral. In German, the equivalent das war schwer has an even wider range of experiences taking in the full, full ranges of the senses of difficult, which in German is the same word as heavy. And in Hebrew, the range is even wider for kavod, heavy, also means abundant and glorious. This metaphorical or figurative use of language is not the same as categorization, obviously. Suitcases and funerals are not in the same experiential category, apart from that word. The word doesn't pick out a wider logical category, which could also be identified by another word, which is mediated by a single word that neither indicates a logical category, nor yet simply reduces to singularity or sameness, as one might say that feeling bloated picks out a single experience. But of course, as soon as you hear the word bloated, you will think actually as physical a feeling as that can carry a different figurative meaning. A lecture or an ego can also be bloated. This brings us back to Lewis's argument that not only our vocabulary, but our physical states and experiences themselves become a repertoire or language mediating experiences that extend beyond the physical, yet cannot be picked out independently of it. This is relatively blatant true of psychosomatic illnesses in which our bodies express what our souls suffer, often in parts of the body associated with particular parts of the soul within a cultural heritage, burning with fevers, feeling butterflies in one's stomach, um, no, sorry, heart, heart, heartache, head pressure, a queasy stomach, etc. It is also the case with other feelings, burning with fevers, feeling butterflies in one's stomach, getting goosebumps. These physical states mediate psychological states, which are in some sense coextensive with them, but which also go beyond them and lend them significance. In a sort of vague hylomorphic language, we could say that these, uh, these emotional experiences give form to the matter uh, of the physical manifestation. Similarly, words originally attached to physical states can pick out experiences of the soul, which we could not describe, describe apart from them, as I just said before, heavy or bloated or um, um, burning or things like that. One of the challenges then is that when we want to identify a spiritual or a phenomenon of the soul or of the spirit, we cannot simply point at something discrete and say, look, there. 
as Lewis says elsewhere, that is like pointing a two-dimensional being to an image of a road receding in the distance and saying, can't you see it's three-dimensional? Here, you can see that this is exactly the same shape as this in the context of this picture. It is clearly three-dimensional to us because we know that there is a third dimension. To the two-dimensional being, there is nothing here but the same shape that is a two-dimensional triangle uh, or cone in another context. Likewise, we cannot simply point the scientist to the pang in the heart and say, this is grief. In his instruments, it shows up the same way as cardiac pain. No, we can only show that we have a three-dimensional road rather than a two-dimensional traffic sign or an ailment of the soul rather than just a malfunction of the body by pointing out things that are odd, that remain unexplained within the two-dimensional or purely material context. Why does the flutter in the stomach arise in this situation? Why is this fever experienced as pleasurable? Why is this desire not satisfied by anything at all, despite the fact that the person experiencing it is not somebody known to be always dissatisfied? This further analogy of two-dimensional images or paintings is one that I find particularly suggestive, as those of you who have listened to talks by me in the last year will know. And I want to use it in order to explore further the implications of what I've suggested, namely what it would mean if the senses through which we experience God are the same senses with which we experience the world. A key element of this dynamic is what we might call the imagination. Tanya Lerman argues, to my mind persuasively, that when humans experience the presence of God, they are exercising their imagination. They are experiencing exteroceptive or more often interoceptive signals through their imagination. Faith, she says, is about the mind. It is about the ontological attitude that people take towards what must be imagined, not because gods and spirits are necessarily imaginary, but because they cannot be known with the senses and people of faith must allow those invisible others to feel alive to them. In other words, we do not usually hear God's voice um, with, our, with our ears. We hear them um, with our imagination, um, it with our imagination. So I want to spend some more time on exploring this sense of imagination and what it might mean for our context. One of the best ways to do this is by thinking about art. What I'm implicitly suggesting in the following paragraphs, and will make explicit afterwards, is that in experiencing the presence of God, people of faith often experience things in the world the way that one would experience a painting, disclosive of a metaphysical depth. The faculty operative in doing so, as I've just suggested, is the imagination. Let me walk you through this. <clears throat> Artistic images elicit imaginative investment by deliberately withholding realistic information or by juxtaposing disparate materials. Let me focus on two aspects of this dynamic, spatiality and materiality. With regard to spatiality, and stick with me here, seeing images at all depends on imaginatively apprehending the perceived parts as organized within a spatial whole. In other words, we see a two-dimensional image in accordance with a three-dimensional framework, which is not itself present in the image because we're still looking at two dimensions but which makes sense of it. This is especially marked, though by no means unique, in optical illusions, such as Wittgenstein's duck rabbit right here, or Necker's cube. Here, the two-dimensional elements in each case are compatible with two different spatial frameworks, 
This can be either a duck or it can be a rabbit. This can be either going this way or that way. In the absence of pictorial context, there are no criteria for arbitrating between these aspects because the organizing space, the space within which these lines make sense, is available only by means of the organized lines themselves. It is perceptually secondary to the image's elements in the sense that it is not apprehended directly. There is no space to which you can point other than the lines here. And yet, nevertheless, you cannot understand the lines um, except by, uh, by being organized already within, within the space that they project. And you'll immediately recognize here the analogy to material reality as a whole that I was making before. Generally speaking, and this is where it gets complicated and a little technical, the success of the attenuated spatiality of a picture, so whether it works that you can see these pictures three-dimensionally, depends on keeping in the viewer's peripheral awareness their specific materiality. Michael Polanyi calls these two elements of pictorial representation a focal awareness of the picture and a subsidiary awareness of the canvas, of the fact that they are uh, two-dimensional. Both, both kinds of awareness, that of the picture, which depicts something three-dimensional, and those of, that of the material, which remains two-dimensional, are necessary for our particular visual. A consequence of this flaunted unreality is that what depth images possess is invested in them by the imagination of artists and viewers, mobilized into encounter by and with the image. To quote Polanyi one final time, the factual information content of art is slight. Its main purpose being to evoke our participation in its utterance. Portraits may serve as an example here. Emotions, practices, habits, and character imprint themselves on human faces, and it, one, it is one of the tasks of portraiture to capture these immaterial imprints or marks of death. But of course, they do so not by replicating the process by which faces come to acquire their features. Portraits acquire their own depth, not from their own interiority, which they do not have, but from a participatory interaction between subject artist, artistic material, and viewer. Artist and beholder invest their own experiences, their own empathy and imagination in the canvas. And it is that depth elicited by the artist's encounter with the sitter and the viewers with the work of the artist, which creates the true illusion of depth in the artwork. In other words, it's our own empathetic imagination um, which brings forth the depth that the, um, that the artist tried to uh, to capture from the sitter. In other words, once again, images succeed as images only by keeping always in the viewer's peripheral consciousness their own unreality. As soon as they seek to overstep that self-limitation, they are no longer images but simulacra, as exemplified by Trump, by Trump loyal paintings or by virtual reality. In philosophical and theological language, this distinction is often described as that between icons and idols. However, the icon-idol discourse tends to obscure the fact that the necessary imaginative participation is always fraught with risk. Images can neither guarantee their authenticity nor secure their own interpretation. Because they are constituted partly by the imaginative investment of their viewers, it is impossible categorically to avoid miss or over-interpretation, and this is really important. Though images may be, in Jean-Luc Marion's terminology, saturated, 
it would be dangerously naive to deny that viewers project saturation as much as they discover it. And this is key. I want to make an argument in three steps. The first two are positive. One, that there is an analogy between the way we experience a work of art and the way people of faith experience themselves, others, and the world, namely as having an unseen depth that makes sense of it. In other words, we see uh, a depth that makes sense of uh, the depth of other people, so to say, the depth of significance of the world around us, because to some extent to us who have faith, these are works of art of God. They are invested with, um, with metaphysical significance. In other words, as I say, the world and other people present themselves to us as not complete within their own dimensions, as rather bodying forth more than meets the eye. Two, that if this is the case, then we can only show that we, others, and the world have such unseen depth by pointing out things that would be odd or remain unexplained within the merely material or even a merely psychological or sociological context. This is the starting point of art as well. And, uh, and art and religion have this in common. Thus, Rowan Williams observes regarding the poet, the reality before him is obscurely incomplete. It proposes to him or her the task of making it significant, which does not mean imposing upon it an alien structure of explanation. In other words, to the artist, as to the person of faith, there is something incomplete about the material world or the merely psychological world. Um, in, if viewed only on its own terms, we have to project uh, a spiritual dimension in order to make sense even of what we have in front of us. And Chagmarita likewise says, art and poetry are the recomposition of a world more real than the reality offered to the senses. In other words, both Williams and Marita register an incompleteness to our merely physical experience of the world, which both art and faith register and respond to faith. The third step in my argument is more cautionary. It is that the recognition of unseen depth is mediated by our imagination, which is fallible. I don't wholly accept Marion's idea that the most important phenomena are those that claim or overwhelm us from outside our own intentional movements. It seems to me at least potentially a cop-out. Our intentional movement, in other words, our orientation, the way we orient ourselves to things and the way we interpret them is always involved. <clears throat> Neither do I think that we have a special sixth sense, which is insulated against the vagaries of our other senses by which we perceive God independently. And because the experience of God in ourselves and in the world relies on imaginative investment, it is impossible categorically to avoid over or misinterpretation here as well. Signs of God are always vulnerable to disconfirmation. What I thought was plenitude was in fact merely manipulation, uh, as people will say after, uh, as recovering charismatics. It's always vulnerable to over-narrating, for example, saying, oh, that God saved me from this illness proves a special love for me, despite the fact that all these other people died of the same illness. And signs of God are always vulnerable to re-narrating. Ask anybody whose marriage has fallen apart. There was a narration of one's life and God's presence in it, and now the entire thing has to be re-narrated. So signs of God are always vulnerable to disconfirmation, to over-narrating, and to re-narrating. We can perhaps make this worry more real by thinking about a more mundane dynamic of the imagination. And this is something that I've been very conscious of recently. Take the long lockdowns of this pandemic. 
and the continuing dominance of virtual meetings. And we're thinking here of how, how the use of imagination um, works when when we're thinking about um, real others, including, in our case, in the case of this paper, God as a real other, but focusing for a moment here on other people. On the one hand, the possibility of virtual meetings is remarkable. It expands our possibilities, uh, as we can see in this conference. On the other hand, it shifts our inhabitation of the world by giving a wholly new role to the imagination. Because other people in virtual in, in a virtual space are not present to us in the same space as we are, we have to flesh out their presence with our own memory and our own imagination. In purely situational terms, the gulf between my mode of reality and that of others has become wider over these last two years. By meeting on screens, we make it so, in some sense, that Descartes' view of others or the situation in a theatre in which we sit in the dark and there are actors on stage is becoming real. Others appear on our screen. They can be moved around on it, eclipsed by other windows, inspected at will, muted, switched off, without our own ever having to move. We don't have to shift our own position relative to others. There is no implication for my inhabitation of space to the change of another's. Of course, we continue to marshal our memory and our imagination of what people are actually like to interpret and flesh out the presences on screen. But the tangible reality is uh, that's before us nevertheless affects us. And over time, our imagination takes over from the real resistance uh, and co-inhabitation of other people in a shared space. And so I think it's become the case over the course of this pandemic that we hear and interpret things ever more within our own little echo chambers. We need resistance. We cannot break through the state simply by more imagination, um, as, though if we are not allowed to see each other, of course, that's all we have. But I think to some extent, our relationship to God is like this, at least apart from the physical environment of church and the sacraments. In other words, God is not physically present to us, except not except in um, environments like the church. And so to some extent, all we have in our relationship to God are encounters mediated by our imagination. And yet we cannot simply, um, the solution is not simply more imagination because what we need is precisely uh, a, a resistance to it. So that's in some, in some respect, uh, our condition within, within the world and we have to deal with it. But what I have said namely that that unseen depth can be perceived by pointing out things that would be odd without it, also points to a negative or an apathetic dimension of the dynamic that I have just described, which is worth reflecting on further. What I advocate, therefore, is a self-abnegating imagination, an imagination that knows itself to be at once necessary and constitutively inadequate, just as our reason and will are necessary, but constitutively inadequate. What I want to argue for in this context is a greater and more intentional attention to the things that are odd, the gaps in our experience that do and will not make sense. Here it is essential to remember that imagination is related to desire. As the will turns the intellect towards truth, so desire turns the imagination towards fullness. Desire has been defined as the pain of the presence of the absent and what makes that absent present in its particular mode of absence is imagination. We therefore should think of the imagination not merely as making God present, but as making God present uh, as absent. 
We remember what Polanyi claimed about images, that they do not simply extend our vision the way that complementary impressions on our left and right eye simply project distance, rather that they offer vision in a kind of impossibility, a depth in flatness. God's presence in our lives is not simply an extension of our lives' natural dimensions. It indwells them as depth indwells a flat canvas. It summons our own imagination to perceive that depth, but unlike with two-dimensional paintings, we do not have independent access to the depth that we are called to perceive. We are, to some extent, two-dimensional creatures, only apprehending a third dimension through the things that don't make sense within our own dimensionality. In other words, we can, we can project depth when we see images because we have independent access to a third dimension. When we talk about the presence of God or a spiritual or eternal dimension, that we are called to perceive in our lives, we don't have independent access to that dimension except through the oddnesses in our lives uh, that don't make sense without it. This is especially the case with perceiving eternity through finitude. We perceive God through the oddnesses of our finitude, and we need to pay attention to these oddnesses without brushing them aside, either towards a too easy assumption of participation or an entire denial of it. God is present in particular ways in our encounters with finitude. Indeed, I think we cannot encounter finitude properly without him. Take Heidegger. Heidegger claims that to be fully human is to live in the face of de death, and that an existential experience of death can only be gained by anticipating our own death, never by witnessing another's. But as Edith Stein has countered, it is not one's own death but the death of others, especially loved others, which brings us most radically face-to-face -face with finitude. This is because to love, as Heidegger himself realized in analyzing his love for Hannah Arendt, is to say, volo utsis, I want you to be. Only in one's love for another can death appear as the horrendous negation that it is. But this implies that human existence includes a desire that life should be infinite, which cannot simply be dismissed as a mere denial of finitude. Rather, it is the acknowledgement of that desire, together with the admission of its impossibility in the face of death or other loss, which brings us face to face with God. Edith Stein herself, or someone in her circle whom she quotes, captures this viscerally after the death of a loved one. And I quote, perhaps to me, the desire that arises from this love is the only condition in which I can stand before God. It leads me to that place beyond the possible, where communion would be, but now cannot be. In that place, one experiences the emptiness, the utter poverty, in which alone one is aware of the preciousness and desirability of the world without being beholden to it, or conversely, in which one is aware of the insufficiency of the world without rejecting it. In short, one experiences the condition of standing as a creature before God, who is at once creator, judge, and savior. I have nothing but my love and the admission that it cannot be lived. To stand in this impossibility, to stand without ground to stand on, is to stand before God. I'll conclude with a painting by Sassan called Old Woman with a Rosary, painted shortly after his conversion to the Catholic faith while he was living in isolation due to illness. Her eyes are dark and her neck bends under the yoke of death. It's a deeply dark and uh, depressing painting in many ways. It's in the National Gallery in London. Her belly is black emptiness. 
But in the midst of all this, her determined hands clutch the rosary beads almost to breaking as she recites the Lord's passion. In his sorrowful mysteries, the woman finds her own nearing death told to her as the bearing, as a bearing of God. And so this picture is also a picture of another annunciation. Here too is a handmaid of the Lord. Her forehead is touched with light. Her neck bends in greeting. Her dark eyes acknowledge an unseen presence. In the hollow of her belly, the sorrowful mysteries are rounded out with the glorious. Here is an invisible depth seen through a sacred imagination that makes new sense both for her of her experience and for us of this painting. Neither act of imagination, hers or ours, contains guarantees of its own truthfulness, but God in his grace may meet and fill it, and our acts of imagination, as of reason, desire, and love, always depend on his free agency, which we cannot grasp. <laughs>